I'd like to have you turn to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. We come now to the last chapter in Amos. Uh, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of this passage. One of the great lessons that we learn as believers in Jesus Christ in studying the Old Testament, in studying what we call the Hebrew Scriptures, the Scriptures that were given to the children of Israel, is that there are tremendous consequences uh, to disobedience, tremendous consequences to rebellion against God. Um, It's easier said than done, though, for us to, to look at them and say, wow, you know, boy, they really fail God, you know. But then we look in the mirror and we realize many times we've been the same thing. And, uh, but yet everything is written, as Paul tells us in the book of Romans, everything is written and given to us uh, as an example for us. And if the word of God is light, then that light has to reveal those areas in our lives that... Uh, that we need to lift up to the Lord, that we need to lay before him every day of our lives, that we might continue to walk in a manner that's, uh, that's not only worthy of his calling, but in a, in a way that gives honor and glory to Jesus. The northern kingdom of Israel from the very beginning was an apostate nation. It was a nation that decided to go on its own, to do its own thing. And the sad thing about that is that uh, it uh, unfortunately became a, a kind of a, even though not consciously uh, an example, but uh, has, has been an example actually to uh, even churches today that choose to go on their own, choose to do things on their own without the guidance of the Holy Spirit and without the Spirit and the Word of God put together to lead and to guide. So we, we realize that uh, as, as old as this book is, it is as contemporary as can, can possibly be in the lessons that we have been learning through it. And uh, through it all, one, one of the great lessons that we learn about God is how patient he is, how patient he's been to his people and how patient he is to us as well. And, uh, you know, this this aspect of him is, is something we learn actually from, from the very beginning, even, even in the Garden of Eden. When man sinned, when Adam and Eve fell because they succumbed to the deceptions and the temptation of, of uh, the serpent and ate, of the, ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had said very clearly, if the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. And yet, what did the Lord do? The Lord clothed Adam and Eve with, with skins, telling us that he cared enough to cover them because they themselves were naked. They didn't need that when they were walking with the Lord. Everything was blessed. Everything was pure. Everything was holy. But as soon as they wanted to become like God in the flesh that they were in, they couldn't handle it. And they became ashamed. And in that shame, God covered them. 
We know that the skins themselves tell us a story. It tells us the story of redemption. It tells us the very fact that God more than likely took lambs and sacrificed those lambs. Because if there's one thing that sin does, is it reveals death. And it took death to cover them. Just as the death of Jesus Christ had to be done to cover us from our sin, which we could not ever erase from our lives. We could never cover it up. We could never uh, atone for it ourselves. The blood of bulls and goats could never do that. The blood of human beings could never do that. The accomplishment of what Jesus Christ did on the cross was the most powerful thing. But it was brought to us and brought to our attention very early on because of God's love. God loved his people. And God has loved Israel. Even through, all, even through it all. And the lessons that he continues to teach them to, to this day is you're going to see who your Messiah is. And when you see him, you'll know that he came 2,000 years ago just for you. So in concluding now, the prophecies of Amos. We look back at four previous visions in chapter 7 and 8 revealed to Amos who would then proclaim them to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel, that apostate nation. I'm going to emphasize that. They were apostate from the beginning. Nonetheless, the Lord gave them opportunities for repentance. Yet now these visions at the end of Amos' prophecy, these visions were to remind them that at some point that opportunity for repentance will come to an end. As Jeremiah said, the summer is past. The harvest is ended and you are not saved. So he was revealed, uh, the Lord was revealing to Amos these visions to proclaim to Israel in preparation for the judgment that was sure to come upon them very shortly. Chapter 7 contained three visions. The first vision was one of devouring locusts, a judgment that was turned back by the prophet's prayer. The second vision was a great fire that would have destroyed the whole land, but also a judgment that was turned back by his intercessory prayer. The third vision, though, was that of the Lord holding a plumb line, revealing that the people were crooked and they were out of line, disobedient and rebellious. But there was no turning back now. It made clear that judgment was sure to happen. You've remained crooked. You remain that way because of your own will. And now judgment will come. 
The fourth vision found in chapter 8 pictured a basket of fruit, a summer fruit to be precise, by which, by which the Lord was pronouncing that his people Israel were ripe. In fact, they were overripe, which means that they were ripe for judgment. And there would be no more delays. All celebrations would cease. Every joyful worship song that they ever sang, even to a golden calf, would be silenced. And slaughtered bodies would be scattered and found everywhere. A picture of what the Assyrians were soon to be doing. But those who survived would be so traumatized that they would be unable to talk. That we find at the very end then of chapter 8. And now we come to the fifth vision that is given to us and given actually to Amos for Israel, but for us to, to study. And that is the vision of the Lord standing upon an altar. Look at verse 1 of Amos chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar. Now, there are some commentators that think that the altar is probably the altar in Jerusalem because a couple of times Judah is mentioned and eventually Judah is going to be uh, judged as well. A few, a few years later, but the, Judah would also be judged. All of Israel then, of course, would be judged. But if we connect this particular vision with what we have just seen in, in, in chapter 8. There at the very end of chapter 8 in verse 14, it says that they swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth. Well, what was the God of Dan? The God of Dan was, of course, the golden calf. So then the, con the context would find that the Lord is really standing upon the altar and more than likely the altar in Bethel, because that's where Amos went. It was closer to him to go to that particular altar, because it was in fact the, the primary center of worship for the northern kingdom. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, smite the lintel of the door. In other words, smite the doorposts, that the posts themselves may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with a sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Now, while we have stressed the, that the fulfillment of Amos's prophecies have an initial fulfillment in Israel's present, in other words, Israel and Amos's present day, there would, there would be a, a, an initial uh, near fulfillment. Again, the Assyrians who were getting ready to... to uh, come and, and take them into captivity. The ultimate fulfillment will eventually come at the end of human history as we know it. And time and again, the Lord has warned us that a day of judgment is coming when he will execute perfect justice on every false worshiper and wicked person who has ever lived. This is, this is one of the reasons why Jesus came. We know that he came, of course, to die on the cross for our sins. But we have to understand that he came for a lot more. He came to reverse what took place in the Garden of Eden. He came to reverse what was happening after, or actually I should say before the flood, and then of course after the flood. Because what was happening? The people kept reverting back to what? They kept reverting back to the worship of idols. Well, where did idols come from if they didn't come from 
the influences of what we saw back in Genesis chapter 6 with, with the uh, sons of God and the daughters of men and of course the giants that were produced out of that whole issue that brought the Lord to have to destroy uh, all living creature, creatures, uh, man especially, but also the animals. How wicked had man become because of all of the influences that were before them at the fall. So Jesus came for, for much more than just to die for our sins. He came for, they thank the Lord, he came to die for our sins. God himself came because nobody else could have done this. But he came to execute perfect justice on every false worshiper and every wicked person who has ever lived. And still in the midst of proclaiming his coming judgment, <clears throat> the Lord offers the most wonderful hope to the human race. Any person who truly believes in and follows the Lord, the God of Israel, will inherit the kingdom of God. His coming judgment and his glorious kingdom are the themes of this final chapter. That's what we're going to look at next time because that's the last part of the, of, of the chapter itself from verses 11 down. And so the fifth vision given to Amos by the Lord includes not just the coming judgment, but the glorious kingdom that the Lord has promised to those who would believe. Amos saw the Lord standing in the temple of Bethel, the very temple where King Jeroboam himself worshipped. It was there at the altar that the Lord spoke and gave this final message to his dear prophet, what we do know from the prophecy of Amos is that the Lord had been very patient with Israel and had endured their terrible sins long enough. Now he made a final decision that the northern kingdom of Israel stood condemned before him and was to face his eternal judgment. And I want to emphasize his eternal judgment because God does not pass the judgment on to somebody or something else. Notice in, in, in the text as we get there how God has said that he was going to do these things. So it would never be established as an independent nation again. In other words, the apostate nation of Israel. It would never be an independent nation again. In fact, and in effect, it was wiped off the face of the earth as a nation. After all of that, Israel would then become an, a, a, a united nation once again. Fractured in many ways, but united. Verse 1 of our text indicates that the Lord was in, in this idolatrous temple. Amos no, no longer needing to use symbols to illustrate. Didn't need to use a basket of fruit or a plumb line. Now the Lord is there. And before he, he had heard the Lord, but now he saw him. And there the Lord, dare we say, dare we say the, the, the Son of God himself. Because if he saw the Lord, then what we have here is, is, uh, is a theophany, what, what, what is called a theophany. A theophany is, is the, an appearance of God in, in the Scripture. But we know that God is a spirit, so in, in most cases, theophanies really are Christophanies, an appearance of Christ in the scriptures. 
And there are a number of Christophanies that we find in the scriptures. Sometimes it's mentioned as, uh, uh, he's mentioned as the, as the angel of the Lord. At times we find him to be a person that appears in the midst of a fire with the three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel. But here we find him as the Lord, as Adonai, standing on this altar. Not only to make the final pronouncement of doom, but to direct the destruction of the altar, the people, and the idolatrous nation. Now, the position that we find the Lord being on and above the altar is quite significant because a true altar, think about this, a true altar signifies the mercy that is shown when a propitiatory, or, or which is a, a, an atoning sacrifice, when a sacrifice is interposed between the sinner and the fire of God's holiness. The sacrifice is on the altar. But since the false altar, but since the false altar at Bethel had never been recognized by God, and in fact it had never recognized the true God, it was a place of judgment, not mercy. And I find it interesting again that the Lord is on the altar. Because if this is indeed the Son of God, if this is indeed a Christophany, if this is indeed a a vision of, of Christ himself in the midst of this altar, then understand that this is in fact a a view of the very fact that when Jesus comes again, the second time, he's coming to be the judge of the living and the dead. And that that is the scripture. That is, that is what the Word of God says. I mean, we can, re- we can read John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That was his first coming. But all we need to do is look at the book of Revelation and look at Revelation chapter 19, where we see him in a totally different light. In fact, we see light coming forth from him, shining bright as the light, uh, wearing gold, wearing you know, white hair, I mean, crowns, and a sword coming forth out of his mouth, eyes with the flames of fire. It's coming to judge. So, since the false altar had never recognized God, it was now a place of judgment and the judge was there. Instead of being the focal point of atonement and and reconciliation, the altar had become the centerpiece of Israel's rebellion and was now the place of God's wrath. The Lord's judgment would begin exactly where it should, at the worship centers of the nation. Those who professed to know the Lord but who lived wickedly were, were hypocrites and would be the first to bear the brunt of God's judgment. Bethel would be destroyed. That Bethel would be destroyed. Dan would be destroyed as well. I want to mention that when you make a trip to Israel, one of the tour stops is up in in the northern region 
where Dan had, they actually have found and excavated the area where uh, the temple was and where the altar was. And you get to see exactly where it was. And it's, 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 a, it's fascinating to be there. One of the, the very first uh, uh, gates uh, you'll, you'll find there in Dan, uh, one of the first gates and in, in, in entrances to a city in, in, the, in the world, and one of the first ones is all there. But it was destroyed completely. Those who profess to know the Lord... See, this is what, what this is what apostasy does. You think you're worshiping God, but you're going about it all the wrong way because it's not according to the Word of God. And so, judgment begins in the house of the Lord, even if the house is a false worship center. Why? And once again, because of the extent of the hypocrisy. You know, it was Peter who said in 1 Peter 4.17, for the time has come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, and I find that statement interesting, if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? What's going to happen to every quote-unquote house of worship where God is not welcome? Or where he's, he's paid some nominal praise? Or some token praise? Or some token mention of Jesus, but everything else is apostasy and heresy? How many houses of worship today will have to face the Lord's judgment for leading people astray from the word of God and from the God of the word? How many? How many false gods are being worshipped in places where Jesus is to have no rivals when it comes to receiving all glory, honor, and praise? Where men and women receive the applause instead of the one who deserves to be exalted? One of the Lord's unnamed servants was instructed to smash the tops of the huge columns of the sanctuary that would cause the roof to collapse and to come crashing down on all the people worshiping false gods. Take note that any who who survived the disaster would be killed by the sword. That's all there in the first couple of, actually in verse 1. It's all in verse 1. I will slay the last of them with a sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. This was a prediction of the coming Assyrian invasion and the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. And by the way, the same devastation was foretold earlier in Amos chapter 3. Something we'd already studied. Verse 11, therefore thus saith the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land. And he shall bring down thy strength from thee. And thy palaces shall be spoiled. In other words, everything will be taken out of the palaces. It will become their spoiled. Everything will be taken out of their places of worship. It will be taken as spoiled. 
And thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish. The great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. And so as implied, there was no escape. Even if they dug into Sheol, even if they dug into hell, look at verse 2, though they dug into hell, which is actually Sheol, the world of spirits, or attempt to climb to the heavens, his hand would find them. They might hide themselves on the top of the, of the lofty Mount Carmel or in the depths of the sea, but they would not escape the judgments their sins deserved. As we read in the next few verses, let's start again in verse 2. Though they dig into hell, then, then shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea. It's kind of difficult because God can see it all. It's their thinking. Maybe if I hide here, God won't see me. Remember being a little kid? Trying to hide for your mom and dad because they were coming with a belt. But you weren't real smart. Well, maybe you weren't. Maybe you were. Man, I wasn't. You know, I get behind a curtain and my feet are sticking out like, how do you not find this guy? Okay, so, it's like I said, they, though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, I can still see you. Thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them. And I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. In other words, I will set my, my eyes upon them for judgment. Well, God does no evil. But the picture is, for the evil that they've done, evil comes upon them. And not for good. So the Lord would send a sword after them and, and, and set his, his eyes on them for evil and not good. And this was the vision. Amos used it as, as a text in the following verses. He described the power that, uh, of the God that, that they had scorned. And called on nature as a witness to his greatness and wisdom. And that last phrase of verse 4 is very chilling. The last phrase of verse 4. I will set my eyes upon them. God's eyes were fixed on them. He is determined to execute true justice and judgment upon all who dishonor him, the only true and living God. Now, better that his eyes be for us than against us, don't you think? Better that his eyes be for us for good than against us. As the Lord stated through a prophet to Azah, king of Judah. 
It was a, a prophet named, uh, or a seer, they call him a seer, named Hanani, who comes and tells Azza, the king of Judah, Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, he says, For the eyes of the Lord. Uh, now, this is a good thing. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Now, stop there, because you know what? It, that would be a perfect place to stop for a good verse. That the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. But the, the verse doesn't end there. There was a problem with Azza the king. And by the way, the, Azza the king was a good king. He was a very good king. But there were weaknesses in his leadership. And he began to trust in the king of Syria rather than trust in the Lord. So what does Hanani say to him? Herein thou hast done foolishly. Therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars. He was still a good king. But he made mistakes. Because he took his eyes off of the Lord. And yet it was the Lord whose eyes ran to and fro for his behalf. On his behalf. On our behalf, to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect. There are wonderful verses about the eyes of the Lord, like Psalm 34, verse 15, that says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. What an encouraging verse that is. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. The ones who have surrendered unto the Lord. The ones who have given their hearts unto God. The ones who have said, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. His ears are open unto their cry. Or Proverbs 15, verse 3, that says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. That's good for us because the Lord knows where he would have us to walk, and he knows where he would not have us to walk. He knows where he would want us to be, and he knows where he would not want us to be. That tells us how much God cares about us and about his people. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Good parents always look out for their children as they're bringing up Babies or little, little toddlers or, you know, growing kids, you know, always watching. Where are they? Make sure. Because of, the, because of the dangerous times in which we live, oh, my goodness. How we have to watch our kids. Some of us grew up in a time when, you know, we were trusting of neighbors. We were trusting, we, you know, we, we had a little bit closer relationship. It's a, it's a funny thing nowadays. Sometimes the culture, cultures in which we grow up, we watch each other's places, you know. Now we let machines do that. But our eyes sometimes don't stay on our kids with, because we're too much concerned about, you know, the email or the text or the things that we're dealing with. 
So what a wonderful thing to know that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good on our behalf. Well, let's continue. Once again, the Lord declares that he himself would execute the judgment. Look at verse 5 now. 5 and 6. And the Lord God of hosts is he that toucheth the land. I emphasize he. The Lord of hosts is he that touches the land, and it shall melt. And all that dwell therein shall mourn. And it shall rise up wholly like a flood, and it shall be drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And there were times when the Nile itself, you know, would, would rise to, to, to great depths. And then it would just subside. Of course, having done its damage already. And then in verse 6 it says, It is he that buildeth his stories in the heaven. The stories like uh, steps, like floors. You know, first floor, second floor, third floor. First story, second story, third story. It is he that buildeth his stories in the heavens, or in the heaven, and hath founded his troop in the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. So let's face it. The Lord has the power to do just what he says. All power throughout the entire universe belongs to him. He alone is omnipotent, which means that he is all powerful. He alone has the power to create and to erupt the earth through volcanoes and earthquakes and other natural disasters that that cause people to mourn. The Lord alone has the power to create and to rule over the heavens and the earth. Now, let me just stop and say that, you know, we're not saying that every time a you know, volcano or an earthquake or, or some other natural disaster happens, uh, that those things are going to happen. God understands and does and, and knows about them before they even happen. They're not always actually aimed, though, with judgment in mind. Not like, you know, the other day when we had such a a windy day that, you know, God was judging us for some reason. No, we just live in a time where the seasons change and and because of the uh, fact that the earth is, is, it's it's unpredictable. Some of these things are unpredictable. Some, Some things happen, they can get worse. Does God judge through some of these things? Yes, he does. He also judges through these things. And sometimes we know that he judges through them because of certain things that man does. But we can't always say that they are all done the same way. So, you know, the Lord is in that particular realm uh, somewhat flexible. But nonetheless, the Lord alone has the power to create and to rule over the heavens and the earth. And that's what he does. It is he who has built his lofty palace in the heavens and he set its foundations on, on the earth. So this fact symbolizes that he is over all and surpasses all that is in the heavens and on the earth. So the Lord alone has the power to draw water from the seas and to pour it out as rain on the earth. But the most important statement given in this phrase is that the Lord is his name. The Lord is his name. He is the God that keeps covenant. The Lord, uh, the Y-H-W-H, we call it Yahweh sometimes, we call his name Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, those four letters, the tetragrammaton, is, is uh, you know, for some people they 
too holy to pronounce. But what it is, is his name that, is, that means that God keeps covenant. And therefore the Lord would keep his word and would judge those who disobeyed him. Time and again, God said, if, if you obey me, I will bless you. I will protect you. I will keep you. I will provide for you. And time and time and again, even when his, 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 his children disobeyed him and he would correct them gently, the hope, of course, being that they themselves would hope to come back into a, into a, a, a good standing with their God. But as they continued to become more rebellious and, and disobedient, God had to judge them. So the use of the phrase here is consistent with Amos's prophecy because in Amos chapter 5 verse 8 it also speaks of God's sovereignty over the universe that he created just as it is being used here in chapter 9. Amos 5 verse 8 says, Seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion and turneth the shadow of death into the morning and maketh the day dark with night that calleth for the waters of the sea and poureth them up upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. It's a reminder of his sovereignty over all things. And so here again as well in chapter 9. And so in the, in the next section of our text, which is verses 7 through 10, the Lord makes it clear that he would be fair in executing judgment. Because certainly one of the things that, that uh, the Lord is, is, is oftentimes criticized for is whether he's really fair or not. How could a loving God do this? Why would, it, why would a loving God allow these things to happen? So in verse 7 it says, Are ye not as children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel? Saith the Lord. Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt? And the Philistines from Kaftor? And the Syrians from Kir. What I did for you. Now, the outcomes were different, but nonetheless, it was God who took the Philistines from Kaftor and took the Syrians from Kir. He took those into judgment. With his own people, he brought them out of judgment. He brought them out of, well, not just so much judgment, but captivity. Brought them out of slavery. And verse 8 says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. And I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. Now we can look upon that, that particular phrase, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom as being somewhat general, as being somewhat uh, just, uh, you know, open to any sinful kingdom, you know, because God is going to judge the nations. We know that. But it could also be very specific, again, pointing to Israel, the northern kingdom. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it 
from off the face of the earth, saving, and of course then now the context is that he is, de- he is dealing with specifically the northern kingdom. Because he says, saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. Now that is a reference really to an end time sifting. Like as the corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. In other words, every believer will be saved. And it coincides with what Paul said in the book of Romans, that all of Israel shall be saved. Because not all Israel is is Israel. But in fact, it will be those who have, in fact, trusted in the Lord. The remnant of believers. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. So most of the Jewish people felt that they were special to the Lord. And I'm not saying this against them. I'd be saying it against myself. But most of the Jewish people felt at that time that they were special to the Lord, that he would never judge them or condemn them. After all, they professed to know the Lord. They had his holy word. They believed the Lord would send the Messiah or Savior to the world through them, the Jewish people. And because of these things, they they were convinced of their being secure in the Lord. They were fairly certain that they worshipped the Lord enough and did enough good deeds that he would never denounce them or convict them. And there are a lot of people that have that kind of same thinking today, you know. Well, I go to church every week. The rest of the week is mine, but, you know, I'll give God one day out of the week. I mean, you should be happy. There's some people that I know just never go to church. But we sure have fun during the rest of the week. The other, the rest of the other part of the week, well, we really... Maybe I should tell them, come and go to church with me one day a week, and then, then we'll have fun later. Kind of crazy thinking, isn't it? But they were certain that they, that, you know, that they worshiped the Lord enough, didn't have good things, the Lord would take all of that into account. But sadly, they foolishly thought that no matter how many commandments they broke, nor how many other so-called gods they might have acknowledged, they were eternally secure because they professed to believe in the Lord. But in the passage that we just read, the Lord lets them know that he would not favor them over others. He would not favor them over others. And he used three examples. The Ethiopians, who were the Cushites, the Philistines, and the Syrians, the Arameans. One thing that we know of all three groups was that they were idol worshippers. All of them. And even though the Israelites felt that they were more important to God than the Ethiopians, they were not. On the contrary, in their 
in their senseless and stubborn addiction to idolatry, the children of Israel had become like the idolatrous Ethiopians. They were proud of being the children of Israel, but 200 years of persistent idolatry had changed that. But the point is this, that they were as far from God as the pagan Ethiopians were. They were as far from God as the Ethiopians and the Philistines and the Syrians. But here's another question. Did the fact that the Lord had brought the Israelites into the land from Egypt make them the children of God? Of course not. God had brought the Philistines from Kaftor, which is referenced in Jeremiah 47, verse 4, and the Syrians from Kir, which is actually referenced in Amos chapter 1, verse 5. Did that make them the children of God? No, not at all. What it does make clear to us is that God is sovereign over all nations. And he gives opportunity for all to know who he is. And so there is one great thing for us all to remember. And that is that the Lord is always, always a God of mercy. The Lord is always a God of mercy. Look again at verse 8 of Amos 9. Behold the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob saith the Lord you see the Lord loves and he guides and he oversees the affairs of all people upon the earth he sees the just And he sees the unjust. He sees true believers and he sees those who only profess to believe. That's the case with all of Israel, both north and south. And therefore his eyes are always on a sinful nation. Watching to see if the nation truly repents and turns back to him. He watches. Can you imagine what he's watching today when he looks at the United States of America? A nation that I can tell you I am I'm fully convinced that God raised up for, the, for a time such as this over the last 300 years for one main purpose and for one main reason to support the nation of Israel back in the land. There's no other way to see it. But look at the nation today. Look at where we are. Look at what we're going to be dealing with here very shortly. As we see now what's happening in Syria. As we see, by the way, what's happening with Turkey and Syria. We see what's happening with Russia 
entering into the picture. And of course, I, Iran is, is not far behind. And as we've already studied in the book of Ezekiel, those three nations, Turkey, Iran, and Russia, are very much uh, in solidarity. Maybe not politically, but biblically. A lot of differences can, can be put aside for the sake of doing what they will eventually be doing against Israel. So, then the eyes of the Lord are very important today, right now. We have a lot of people that are really upset with what uh, they felt uh, President uh, Trump was, was doing against the Kurds for not supporting them, whatever. But if we go back, if we were to go back tonight, and uh, uh, just very quickly, if we were to go back tonight to Ezekiel 38 and deal with the prophecy of the Magog-Magog war, it's a very interesting thing that what may appear to be the reference of the uh, sons of Tarshish as, as the United States being a part of that, along with Sheba and Dedan, which are, by the way, uh, references to Saudi Arabia. And, you know, we have, a, we have a, a, a treaty with Saudi Arabia now that is a lot stronger than it's ever been, putting us in the, into that picture of not actually standing strong against what this Gog-Magog alliance is doing. Well, if we want to get political, we can get upset or not upset. What I say is, you know what, look at the scriptures. Keep trusting what God is doing. Because God will always be God. He's in control of all things. So before we start, you know, getting our political feathers riled up, <laughs> let's trust the Lord here. Let's trust the Lord. His eyes are always on a sinful nation because he wants to see if they're going to truly repent and turn Back to him. If not, he's ready to destroy the nations. God is a judge of nations. But in this case, a remnant of true believers would be saved. This is the reason why Judah is mentioned here. Or I should say the house of Jacob. And of course, the house of Jacob involves both Israel and Judah. So in the coming judgment, the Israelites would be shaken like a sieve to separate the chaff from the wheat. Notice in verses 9 and 10, For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. God knows every one of his people. God knows every one of his faithful. God knows every one of the remnant. Then he says, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. So the true believers would be held secure in the hands 
of the Lord. But all the sinners among the, the people of Israel would face the justice and judgment of God. When, when God's judgment falls upon the earth, there will be no escape. All the wicked and hypocritical worshipers of this world will face the terrifying condemnation of God. And again, God is not being capricious. God has been very patient. God has endured. And he's waited. He's waited for man to turn back to him. He's waited for his own people to turn back to him. So all the wicked and hypocritical worshipers of this world will face the terrifying condemnation of God. They've been given every opportunity to repent. No matter our status in life, how high a position we may hold, or, nor how much money we may have, not a single one of us will escape the justice of God. We'll all stand. If we are believers, we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If we're not a believer, we will stand before the great white throne judgment of God, but everyone will stand. There was a powerful statement made by Jesus to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. When you get an opportunity, read the whole chapter. Because he's speaking to the hypocrite. To the whitewashed tomb. Take care of the, you know, they took care of the outside. They, they looked so pious and so holy on the outside in their robes with their phylacteries, uh, the little boxes that held the word of God on their foreheads and on their hands. But he called them whitewashed sepulchers, whitewashed tombs, empty and dead on the inside. Well, later on in Matthew 23, verse 29, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because ye build the tombs of the prophets. Now notice this. You build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Boy, and Jesus reveals their hearts, doesn't he? Look at verse 31. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which kill the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents. No, no, I mean, look at what he calls them. You serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Cannot hide behind robes. Cannot hide behind crosses. Guilt and gold. Paul in Romans chapter 1 verse 28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. This is, these are the people that, that, that Paul said earlier about that he, he said that they were you know, that they, they knew him, they, they just wouldn't pay attention. 
to God than to Christ. The ones who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He said, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient or fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. I mean, that, that could be a list of everybody that lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, practically. Who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. How sad that is. That knowing the judgment of God, Rather than crying out to them and saying, listen, if you don't change your ways, if you don't turn back to God, you're going to be judged for eternity. Not only do they do the same, but they have pleasure in those that continue to do that kind of, of hatred or show that kind of hatred toward God. I want to close this particular section with something that Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5. And look at verses 1 through 5, if you will. And we'll close with this because it, it does end in a good way for us. It says, But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety. You see, the northern kingdom for a long time said peace and safety. But notice how history repeats itself. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, ye, brethren, are not in darkness. That the day, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You're not in darkness. Why? Because we have the light of the word of God. He says, ye are the children of light. You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Now let me quickly tell you this, because it's coming up here shortly. But... Um, you know, some people think that Halloween is a good is, is a, it's a good thing to celebrate. What's wrong with it? I want to take one more hour, is that, if that's okay with you. Actually, I'm going to talk about it on Sunday. But I'm just going to mention it here. It's all darkness. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care how many billions of dollars they spend nowadays. I think it was Greg Reed on Sunday, a couple of Sundays ago, that he said that... Uh, now, this is America's new uh, uh, holiday, new religious holiday. Look at, how, look at the houses being decorated, you know. That light's like, like, uh, like on a Christmas you know, thing. For what? 
If you study the roots of Halloween, you realize something. It's all darkness. It's all spiritualism. It's, it's, uh, it's evil. It's all evil. It's not of the light. And anything not of the light is of darkness. We'll talk more about it, but I, I just had to mention that because of, what, of the way that Paul ended that letter. He said, we're not, of the, we're not of darkness, we're of the light. Let the light of God so shine in our lives. Let it, let it shine. And I, and I pray, you know, that... Because, uh, you, know, you know, there's even some churches today that say, oh, there's nothing wrong with Halloween. Study it. Examine it. It's not just spiritualistic. It's, it's demonic. There's a purpose in it, in it all. The... Uh, the costumes. There's a reason for that. I'll talk about it on Sunday. 